Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. Dangerous Hill by Gwilades Townsend of Raynham. This is a true story of a ghost and a disregarded warning. For obvious reasons, I cannot give the name of the house, as it is usually to let furnished. An identification either of it or of the dangerous hill might be asking for all kinds of trouble. The house and the hill exist today. You pass them on the way to the south coast if you like to make a detour down a road off the beaten track of swimming pools and petrol pumps, and you will have a glimpse of the English countryside as yet unspoiled. The delightful environment is within an easy run from London. In summer the scent of the pines mingled with the tang of the heather and the sweetness of gorse rises like incense in the dancing haze. Wild flowers star the earth with beauty. At first sight the house appears to be a sanctuary set in a garden of dreams, but unlike most out-of-the-way houses, it represents the last word in modern comfort. The house came into the hands of the West End agent as something of a surprise, perfect in every detail, furnished in exquisite taste. It bore no relation whatever to the usual furnished house. It was an executor's investment, and the final transactions were in the hands of well-known lawyers. My acquaintance with Dangerous Hill began about two years ago with one of the bright young people, somewhat resembling the type described by Lorna Ray, who, when speaking of their parents, say, I sometimes think we make a mistake in trying to be nice to them, eating their ghastly dinners and letting ourselves be dragged out to theaters by them. We're weak. We ought to make a stand against it. Tanit, who tolerates me as a harmless survival or prehistoric age, and occasionally condescends to confide in me, told me she was engaged to a nice boy who I had known since he was an infant, whose mother was one of my school friends. The girl Tanit, a lovely production of art and nature, is the embodiment of a pagan nymph of the woods, and grows. Her brilliant hair, in some lights bronze and others copper, flames around a heart-shaped, dissatisfied little face. Her gray-green eyes have looked on most things and have tired of them. She is frankly disenchantée, but she is straight and delicate in line. At times she is woolly nymph, but occasionally she reminds one of the loveliest film stars. I'm terribly glad, I said. Y you are such a good sport, and as you will have everything you want, I suppose you are satisfied? Yes, said Tanit. W and I are very happy, and we've planned something quite unusual. No honeymoon. We're going to take a furnished house and go straight there for a few months to see how we like it. If we find we don't get on, we can finish and sublet the house. You see, she explained, it's not like marrying under the conditions girls of your time put up with. It's safety first today, and if at first you aren't happy, try again with someone else. Where are you going, my pretty maid, for this legalized trial of mutual suitability? Moms has heard of a terribly attractive furnished house fifty miles from London, 
We can run up for dances and cinemas and have no end of a time playing tennis, tearing about the countryside, bathing by moonlight and dancing on the lawn. I couldn't live in the country, but it has its points, and I'm terribly fond of flowers. Besides, most important of all, the dogs will adore it. Have you ever heard that short retirement often urges swift return? She looked at me suspiciously. No. Anyhow, we are motoring down on Monday to see it. Mums can undertake all the sensible things and see that there are enough cupboards, and we shall look around for the gay bits. There's a bathing pool. The crowd will fall for that. No end of fun and no chance of being dull. Never a spare moment to ourselves. Under these pleasant conditions, you and W will get to know each other thoroughly, I said dryly. Tanit, her beloved, and my old friend duly went to inspect the house. The way of the return had been already decreed. W, the inconsequent fortunate youth, without a care in the world, in love with life and love, was brought home dead. Tanit passed long weeks in the hospital, and when she was told what had happened, she remembered how they had lived for the moment and found tragedy. Later in the year, at Raynham, I heard part of the story of dangerous self from Mums, but the true explanation came from Tanit. Mums described the start on that fatal morning and how W's latest speed car lived up to its reputation and took the very steep hill marked dangerous as gracefully and easily as a swallow's flight. The house is at the top of the hill with half a mile of tree-bordered drive leading to it and Mums said the house looked Spanish when they saw it gleaming white in the sunlight. The grounds had been admirably kept up, spring was everywhere, daffodils danced in the orchard grass, and pink and white blossom foamed on the trees. The caretaker, previously advised by the agent, was ready with keys and maps of the estate. The house seemed lived in, as if someone might come in at any moment. Even the telephone was installed. Tanit actually allowed herself to enthuse, and the boy and girl raced upstairs and downstairs, full of excitement that it would soon be theirs, although they had no use whatever for domestic details. But darlings, expostulated mums, we must be sure that the kitchen and offices are in perfect order. This appeal made not the slightest impression. Surely servants saw to that kind of thing, for what other use were cooks created except to sample stoves and cook food on them? Just like mums, to fuss all elderly people ought to be put to sleep before they become senile. However, Tanit and W, if casual, and on the surface heartless, were occasionally affectionate, and they left Mums to explore the kitchen premises undisturbed, while they went into the sunshine to meet the spring. The girl described the gardens as marvelous. The previous owner was someone with a taste for the antique. There were statues. Tanit remembered one of Pan, piping to echo. Satyrs peeped from the cool darkness of a thicket, and in the Italian garden, fountains sent up jets of trembling spray. The boy and girl presently discovered the water garden, where in a few days masses of iris would be seen in all their purple splendor. They sauntered along flagged paths, looked at rock terraces down which miniature cascades raced, and found a wide stone seat facing the glorious view across the green valley. Here they sat to plan their enchanted spring and summer on the summit of Dangerous Hill. I will tell Tanit's story what happened next, as nearly as possible in her own words. We had been sitting there about a quarter of an hour, and then she came. We didn't notice her coming, which was strange as the paths were flagged, and you could have heard a pin drop. It was so still. 
Have you ever seen a ghost, Aunt Gwiladis? Yes, I certainly have. Because she must have been a ghost. Although, naturally, we didn't think so at the time. All we saw was a tall woman in deep mourning, quite attractive and terribly sad, who spoke in a sort of far-off voice. She said, What brings you here? W explained, We were thinking of taking the house. It's just what we want. The others thought so, too. We are going to be married, W said. We're both sick of the beaten track. We've been everywhere, done everything, cruising, motoring, winter sports. The woman nodded. I understand. And you are very much in love? We felt a little awkward. Why be sentimental? We get on terribly well. We hope we shall be happy. They were going to be happy. The others loved each other very dearly. They were about your age. But the hill did not allow them to be happy. What hill? And we began to think our woman was very odd. What hill did she mean? I bought the house, she said, although I was told that the site and the hill belonged to ancient forces which resents intruders. But it was so beautiful, I would not listen. You must listen. Don't come here. Go back to London. Forget this place. Remember the other two. Who were the other two? Do you live here? She said she didn't live far away. All at once we heard a bell tolling somewhere. I shivered. What a depressing sound. We must be close to a church, W whispered. Can't you hear the passing bell? Be warned, said the woman. W was getting really angry, but the woman smiled a curious twisted sort of smile, and then she was gone, disappeared as quickly as she came, and I remembered that, though there was bright sunlight everywhere, the woman was shadowless. I had kept on wondering what was odd. Now I knew. The air felt suddenly cold. W was still peeving. I don't like this. It's queer. What did she mean by forces? What forces? Let's go. The bell kept tolling as we hurried into the house. We found Mums up to her eyes in notes and queries. Shan't be ready for the quarters of an hour, she announced. We can easily have a late lunch at Rygate. Who's the lady in mourning we met in the water garden? asked W of the caretaker, who stood by. He didn't rightly know. Someone from the village, he supposed, and that's all we could get out of him. W was a bit nervy, and so was I. I don't like this place, he said. Get back to the main road. Mum said she would join us later. As I got into the car, I am sure I heard someone laugh. Seen from the top, the hill looked very steep and it was a nasty curve which I hadn't noticed before. A board was staring us in the face. Dangerous hill. W stood up in the car. He was irritable and nervy. Damn you, dangerous hill, he shouted. I don't care for you, or for any old forces. We shall live here as long as we like. You can't stop us. We streaked down the hill. I heard voices in the air and the distant bell tolling again. At the bottom, a lorry came out of a concealed turning. We crashed with a sickening sort of grinding noise. The car turned over. That's all. The next thing I remember I was at the hospital. W was killed instantly. Mums has told you what he looked like. He was dreadfully disfigured. It was terrible. Her gray-green eyes filled with tears. I try not to forget. He would have hated to be wept over. I believe he was a sacrifice. A sacrifice? Yes. To the things which owned Dangerous Hill. I wouldn't say this to anyone but you, but it's true. The ghost in the garden was right. 
nobody must live in the house. If they do, Dangerous Hill steps in and finishes things. I said, there's more to come. Yes. The others were like us, engaged. The boy was an only son. His mother was the woman in the garden. After the car smash on Dangerous Hill, when he and the girl were killed, she died of a broken heart. It must have been her ghost, and she tried to warn us that the hill demanded a sacrifice. Mums heard afterwards that they are buried close to Dangerous Hill. That may account for the passing bell we heard. Well, I'm going for a breath of fresh air, and don't think me an awful fool for believing ghosts. I said, take consolation, remember these lovely lines. They shall not grow old as we who are left grow old. Age shall not wither them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. To Fetch Him Away, A True Family Ghost Story Connected with My Grandfather's Passing by Maud Folks. It may be considered the worst possible taste to allow any family skeleton under a hundred years old to emerge from its cupboard and make its dry bones live again. In this instance, the skeleton represents a true ghost story. The principal actors in the tragedy have been dead many years, with the exception of myself and some distant cousins the family exists no longer. Once upon a time, to begin in the good old-fashioned way, John Chester Craven, a civil engineer, and his young wife Jane were living in Leeds when railways were more or less in their infancy. John Chester Craven, who had served his apprenticeship under Robert Stevenson, was fast making headway and being a hard-headed Yorkshireman. He understood what the development of the Iron Road would signify in the future. The Cravens had two sons. Alfred and William, and a daughter, Eliza. The other children came on the scene later and do not enter into this story. I am William's only child. My grandfather-to-be was entirely devoid of sentiment, and if he possessed hidden depths, nobody had the courage to plumb them. Perhaps he did not even realize their existence. His gods were money and railroads, and to these deities he dedicated his brains and his life's work. For the rest, he had the small, smothered life, of an early Victorian husband in a manufacturing town. Outside his profession, he had no interest. Jane Craven's affections were centered in her eldest son, and it is strange how often unemotional parents beget emotional and imaginative children. Alfred and William were both. The elder, according to the meager information given me in after years by my grandmother, was a handsome, sensitive lad with a charming disposition. William, mercurial and outspoken, promised to be as clever as his father, and his character as a boy and man may be summed up in the damning expression, nobody's enemy but his own. My grandparents married at the unripe age of nineteen, and they were still young when Alfred, William, and Eliza had reached the age of ten, eight, and seven. Their mother loved them as a mother, but their father regarded his family solely as a light of obedience to a command from God to increase and multiply, and no doubt he hoped that his sons would be successful followers in his calculated and intelligent footsteps. I always think of the dour man of thirty or thereabouts, with the keen gray eyes whose black eyebrows almost met across his nose, as a prototype of Charles Lawton's Mr. Barrett of Wimpole Street. And, like Mr. Barrett, John Craven possessed an ungovernable temper. His rage was cyclonic, but 
as he was quite aware of the danger which these attacks represented, he usually kept himself well in hand. Unfortunately, one day, when he had been engrossed for hours in the conception of a new locomotive, the designs were innocently destroyed by Alfred Craven, while his father was away down at the works. When the little boy realized what he had done, he flew to his mother, and the mother and son, with William posted outside the front door, like Sister Anne, to see if any one was coming, awaited John Craven's return. Presently William, with puck-like glee, announced that his father was in sight. "'You'll not let him beat me, mother,' faltered Alfred. "'Ah, love,' said his mother, "'I'll not let thee be beaten. Stay quiet.' The trio stayed so quiet that John Craven asked what ailed them as he went upstairs to work. Presently the little group in the living room heard a chair violently overturned. The bedroom door was thrown open and slammed to with a wrenching crash that threatened its hinges, and John Craven, taking the stairs three at a time, demanded to know who had destroyed his designs. There was a tense silence. "'Speak up, damn you!' said the angry man. "'Who did it?' Alfred emerged from behind the sanctuary of his mother's rocking chair and raised candid, tear-drenched eyes. "'Please, sir,' he whispered, for in those days little boys addressed their fathers as sir. I tore up the drawings by accident. Mother wanted some kindling paper. The drawings lay on the floor. I thought you had flung them down as useless, and I'm very sorry, sir. Please pardon me. His mother said, Forgive the lad, John. He's but a child. This affectionate interference made matters worse. Forgive? John Craven repeated scornfully. I'll teach him to meddle with my drawings. To Alfred he said, "'Take off your coat and waistcoat. Now your shirt.' "'What are you going to do?' cried Jane Craven. Her husband silenced her with one of those terrible looks which, even when he was an old man, were able to reduce his adult family to silence. He went into the kitchen and returned with a new piece of thin rope, which whistled through the air as he tried its strength. "'You are not to use that on Alfred,' said his wife, placing herself between father and son. John Craven took his wife by her shoulders, put her outside in the hall, and locked the living room door. He then thrashed Alfred, William watching open-eyed in a corner. After Alfred's shrill shrieks had become moans and his moan sobs, John Craven unlocked the door. Take him to his bed. He's learnt his lesson, he told his wife. My lamb, my lamb, don't weep. Thy mother loves thee. Thy back will soon mend, whispered the poor mother, lapsing into the soft Quaker speech of her girlhood. And when Alfred lay in his bed sobbing and trembling, she sat beside him and comforted him. In the morning, Alfred's bed was empty. He had run away. William questioned, only remembered seeing his brother going quietly out of the room. All trace of Alfred was lost. Those were the days when fugitives of any description had a good chance of escape. On the sixth morning after Alfred's disappearance, word came that he lay dying at a small country inn twelve miles from Leeds. I cannot say how this news was received. My grandmother was the most unemotional and unsmiling woman I have ever seen, so I suppose this phase dates from the evening when she stood by her son's death body and listened to what the people of the inn had to tell. Alfred had died an hour before her arrival. The little she heard was horror. Alfred's combined fear of the rope and his father's determined him to run away, he knew not whither, and it mattered not, so long as he put distance between himself and his home. His back was covered with wheels, his nerves were wrecked. Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Alfred told the innkeeper's wife, into whose motherly arms he finally stumbled, 
that he had eaten nothing save a few blackberries and a turnip or two, filched at dawn from a lonely field. He slept in coppices and cooled his tired feet in friendly streams. After I saw your inn, I couldn't run away any further. Don't tell my father, but can I see my mother? And now please, may I go to sleep? The hospitable Yorkshire folk tended Alfred with whispered comments and conjectures. They bathed him, fed him, and after he told them who he was and where he lived, he sank from earthly sleep into a deeper, more restful slumber, from which he woke to a smile in a kinder world. Jane Craven took the body back to Leeds in a covered wagon and sat beside it. I have heard that she caused a pane of glass to be inserted in the coffin lid, immediately over the dead boy's face, as yet untouched by corruption, and at times, on this Via Dolorosa, she looked at the quiet features from which fear was lifted forever. Alfred was buried in the grey round hay cemetery at Leeds. From that day until the day of her death, over fifty years later, his mother wore his miniature in a brooch, and as a fatherless child of five, I remember asking her, Who is that little boy? The slow years passed, the Cravens had settled at Brighton, where John Chester Craven's name was known, not only as that of a remarkably clever engineer, but also in connection with his work on the LB and SC Railway. He had made a small fortune and built a hideous, barn-like house where he continued the drab domesticities of many years. His son William was dead, slipping easily and unexpectedly into eternity one February evening at the age of 35. After experiencing some of the joys and all the disillusions of life's crowded hour. And now the husband and father lay dying in the crimson red-draped four-poster which he had shared with his wife at Leeds, and although so seriously ill he was still the tyrant, the sound of whose latch-key in the front door set the household a-fluttering, lest the cook might be a minute late with dinner. Like Charles II, my grandfather took an unconscionable time in dying, and while his complicated compliant afforded his family an endless topic of conversation. It must have been wearisome waiting for the sick man, drowning in the vast white sea of the feather bed. At times he listened to the ticking of the watch, presented to him after he had made the Darlington Railway, now hanging in a golden blob from the purple velvet and beaded watch pocket, immediately over his night-capped head. Sometimes he would command White, his wife's personal maid, who was always in attendance in the sick room, to read aloud his favorite psalm, and White, by religion a strict Baptist, with a belief in the gaudy terrors of a flaming hell, was obliged willy-nilly to drone out a description of cool green pastures where a kindly shepherd led his sheep beside the still waters. One afternoon, when I was a girl of seventeen, I was introduced into this milieu of protracted death. Hitherto, owing to the antagonism of my mother towards her husband's family, I had not seen much of my grandparents since my father's passing, but as a shadow of death temporarily obliterates family quarrels, I have been allowed to see Grandpapa for the last time. Good afternoon, Grandpapa, I said, advancing to the bedside, to a hostile eye scrutinized me unfavorably. You are Maud, are you not? Yes, Grandpapa. He raised himself with difficulty on his elbow, and pointed an accusing finger at me. William's girl. Don't look at me with your father's eyes. I don't want you here. Go away and tell William and Alfred. I forbid them to wait for me. I never saw such impudence. White closed the Bible. Better not stay, miss. You only excites the master. The old servant, 
who had nursed me as a baby, bade me come with her into the large dressing-room, opening immediately off the bedroom. "'Shan't be long, sir,' she said to her patient. "'There's the handbell close beside you, if you wants me,' I said. "'Whatever did Grandpapa mean when he said Uncle Alfred and Papa weren't to wait?' "'Shh, miss,' reproved White. "'There are things you may ask, and things you may not.' I was an impatient girl. "'Don't be silly, White.' They are both dead. Grandpapa is wandering. White pursed her lips. Better if he did wander. Tell me now, I begged. The master's time is drawing near, said White. I can't, and I won't, tell you anything until after he's gone. Then maybe, when you hear what's happened night after night in this very room, you'll take things more seriously. I wonder what the mistress thinks about it. She's a rare one not to talk. But depend upon it, she knows. I looked around the dressing room, the ugly mahogany furniture shining like a horse chestnut, the display dressing table and the long lace curtains, discreetly draping the tall windows overlooking the drive. Nothing could possibly upset the smugness of a house like this. In due time, Grandpapa died, and when I next came to Brighton, White kept her promise. It's the horriblest thing that's ever happened in this house. But it must not cross your lips, miss, until there's none of us old people living. Listen, Miss Maud, your grandpapa was fetched away by that poor boy he mishandled so shamefully years ago. It's gospel's truth. And Mr. William came along to be company for his brother, though why he should mix himself up and it beats me. Three months ago, every evening, towards eight o'clock, the master began to get fidgety. White, says he, is Mrs. Craven in the dressing room? I hear someone moving about. No, I tells him, reproving. At this hour as well you know, the ladies is sitting in the morning room. Well, Master would have it that two people were in the dressing room. At first we put it down to fancies. But one evening, when I came upstairs from my supper, I found Master carrying on like a raving lunatic, with the dressing room door standing wide open. It's them, shouted Master. Alfred and William are waiting for me. They came to the bedside, and Alfred asked me if I remembered beating him, and William said that I know that I had acted dishonestly to his widow and child, meaning you, miss. But Mrs. William was always Madam Hoity-Toity, says Master, and my actions don't concern William. He's dead these many years. Lock the door white. Keep Alfred out. I don't like the look of them. And sit down and read me the twenty-third psalm. In walks the mistress. I've seen Alfred and William, Master tells her. Both of them say I've got to go with them. The mistress looks at him. Strange, most strange. Then she says to me, You see how it is, White? Don't mention this downstairs. And she stood staring at Master. I wonder, she whispered. I wonder if it is the justice of God. Well, Miss... This sort of thing went on regular ever since that night. We've tried giving Master sleeping draughts, but t'weren't no good, and he always declared that his sons were waiting to fetch him away. The night before Master died, he called me, and says, quite natural-like, White, I'm going to die tomorrow night, but I'm quite prepared, says Master. I want to see the green pastures and the still waters. I'm a very tired old man. I hadn't the heart to tell him different, but I don't think Master 
has got to them green pastures yet. A hard man he was, but well thought of by the vicar and the town council. I dare say if he lived, he would have been mayor of Brighton. The next night, master was worse, and the mistress, Miss Craven, and Mrs. Hallett, didn't so much as take their clothes off. Doctor said he was thinking fast, and he was restless, and didn't know anybody. Around one in the morning, everything was quiet, when all of a sudden we were startled out of our wits by a loud sort of cry under the windows for all the world like a hello, ending in a scream. The ladies heard it. Cat, says the mistress to Mrs. Hallett. And Al, says Mrs. Hallett, looking at Miss Craven. Some drunken man, snaps Miss Craven crossly. That very moment the call came again, but Master didn't take no notice. Past it he was. Then bless me if it didn't come once more louder and more ghastly than ever. White, says the mistress, look out of the dressing-room window and frighten those cats away. I went into the dressing-room, but if I had known who was waiting below, wild horses wouldn't have dragged me to the window, much less made me open it. There was the two of them, miss, Mr. William, as natural as life, and with him a little boy, the spit of the likeness, and Mistress Brooch, quiet little fellow, all eyes, looked as if he had been crying. They were staring up at the house. The little boy was carrying some sort of a skipping rope. I pushed down the window and ran back, shaking like a leaf. Well, White, says the mistress, shutting her eyes like you, miss, when you're none too pleased. I hope you frightened away the cats. Twas no cats, I began. It was, and I stopped, because mistress opened her eyes and looked straight at me. Then she went over to the bed, just in time to see master die. That's all, miss, and it's the truth. I couldn't have dreamt it, for if ever I saw anyone clearly, I saw Mr. Alfred and Mr. William as clearly as I see you. I don't know why they were allowed to come back and plague Master, when he found such comfort in the twenty-third psalm, and had had plenty of time to repent of being such a slave-driver with the railway men. But there's no doubt about it, Miss Maud. Mr. Alfred and Mr. William fetched their father away.' 